All right, good morning, church. As you can see up there, this is time for the kids to be dismissed. If you are four through first grade, you can head out the north doors over there with whoever's there to lead you. Well, uh, about six weeks ago now, I'd say, uh, Nathan was looking at how the rest of Colossians was going to... Let me introduce myself. I'm John Downer. I'm one of the elders here. I forgot to mention that when I started, and some of you may not know me. Um, So anyway, about six weeks ago, uh, Nathan was looking at how the rest of Colossians was going to break out over the next few weeks, and I was uh, waiting with great interest to see how that was going to play out because I had committed to preaching on this day, Um, and I had decided already I wasn't going to do a topical sermon. I like topical sermons. I can just cherry-pick a topic that I feel particularly uh, enthusiastic about or equipped to speak on. It's safe. It's easier. But last summer, I spoke on judges and really enjoyed that process of just taking whatever the Lord was going to give me and doing the best I could with it and really trusting him to help guide me through that process. So I wanted to do that again. So I said, give me whatever, whatever comes. I'm ready for it. But I was secretly playing, praying, please don't make it be the husbands, wives, children's, and slaves part. That's difficult, and I would really love for pastor to be the one that has to handle that and kind of talk us through that, which he did last week, and he did an excellent job on it. So I got Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and I was like, excellent. It's short, and it's pretty straightforward. And then I started to get into it, and I realized, oh boy, this is not going to be that simple, because these are difficult verses. After, over the last three weeks as I've been working on this, I've come to understand just how challenging these verses are. And so you might say I've been working on this sermon for the last three weeks, but the reality is it's been working on me for the last three weeks. Because this passage is a bit like a mirror. You can't look at it and not see yourself exactly as you are. And I've seen some hard things about myself. And as I've looked at this church in the light of the admonitions in these verses, I've seen some hard things about this too. These verses are essentially just about prayer and evangelism. Those are the two topics. It's two topics, prayer and evangelism. That's what it's all about. And I have to confess and be the first to admit, I struggle with these disciplines. I absolutely believe in them. I try to practice them. I've certainly seen God move many times in my life in both the areas of prayer and evangelism. But if I'm honest, I have to say I don't pursue them the way Paul calls the Colossians to and the way he himself did. And as I look at the church, I think we struggle with this corporately too. There may be individuals, there are certainly individuals in this church who are really passionate and very effective in these areas, but I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that as a body, we struggle with our commitment to these, especially on a corporate level. And what is that evidence? Well, Sunday morning prayer times. I think there's some people over there praying for us right now, but there's only 12 people signed up to do that for the five Sundays that we have in a particular month, so it's not a huge number. Monthly Berean Lifeline prayer, once a month, I think we get about 20 people for that. So it's not a huge percentage of the overall church, and we have about 180 people that attend here on a regular basis, so it's a pretty small percentage. What about evangelism? I think we do a great job with our youth, And our kids, next Sunday we'll have a baptism service. I think it's all youth that are being baptized on Sunday. 
So there's plenty of fruit happening there from the people who are regularly attending this church. But what about amongst adults? Are we seeing a ton of new believers amongst adults here? Probably not. I don't remember the last time that we baptized someone who had become a believer at this church through the ministry of this church. Maybe those people are happening. Maybe they're going to other churches. But I look around and I think this, this is not necessarily something that we're great at. We're not growing as a church. We have been pretty static with our numbers for years and years. And we do have new people coming, but usually they're replacing people that have gone. So where's the new growth? Where are we seeing lots of people coming to the Lord? As I looked at these, I was like, gosh, this may be something that's an area where we struggle. I know it's an area I struggle in. So what I thought might be a pretty easy sermon has turned out to be a really difficult sermon, difficult to prepare, difficult to really wrestle with, and we'll see how it goes. It may be difficult to preach too. But I want to challenge you as we walk through these verses to do some soul searching and look into the mirror that Paul has put before us. See yourself as you are and see this church as it is and then decide what you must do. If you look at these verses and you think, I'm good in this area, this is a strength for me, then great. I hope you get something out of this. Um, But for those of you who, like me, go through this and feel the weight of conviction, I hope that uh, you let that you wrestle with that. You let that soak in a bit. But know this, and this is very, very important. Receive grace. I had to tell myself that because I just felt like, gosh, I'm doing a terrible job in some of these things. And I had to keep coming back to grace. And honestly, when we cannot look at these five verses and not look at them in the context of the whole book, which might be difficult because we're talking about weeks and weeks ago that we started this. But if you go back to Colossians 1-2, the first verse, Paul introduces himself. The second verse, he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul starts this book with grace, and we have to start with grace too. So just know that if you're like me and you're seeing some things that you don't like as you look in Paul's mirror, give yourself grace. God does not love you less if you struggle with prayer. He does not love you less if you aren't sharing your faith or consistently talking to non-believers about God's word. God's love is not a conditional love based on your performance. He loves you. He accepts you no matter what. So if you hear nothing else, hear that. So if anyone comes out of this message questioning their faith or feeling just condemnation, that would be a tragedy. I absolutely don't want that. If, however, you come out of this with an earnest, spirit-led conviction to pray more and more joyfully, or to engage those around you with the truth and beauty of God's word, that will be a happy outcome. So as we dive into this, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you uh, that you are worthy of all of our worship. I thank you that you are so good to us and that your love is so unconditional for us, that you accept us as we are. Father, that is such a wonderful thing, and you are the source of so much joy in our lives, and I hope that we hold on to that and cling to that today as we dive into this message. And Lord, I confess that I don't do well the things I'm asking this congregation to do. I don't do well the things that that Paul is asking us to do and asking the Colossians to do and that you have captured in the word for us for all time. I need to be better in this area, Lord, and so I confess my own 
uh, falling short in that area, and I thank you that you give grace in that. I thank you that uh, you love me just as I am. You love each person in this room just as we are. And I ask that you would use these verses to uh, bring a spirit-led conviction, not condemnation, that we would love prayer and love our neighbors and love, the, uh, love to share the gospel with them. So, Lord, will you do a work in our hearts today, Lord, uh, rooting us in grace and love first and foremost, but also challenging us to follow you a little bit more closely. Uh, We can just yield this time to you, Lord, ask you to work on our hearts according to your good purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read the passage. In the next slide, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul starts with devote yourself to prayer, not just pray. That goes without saying. He's asking for a deeper level of commitment, devotion. So what exactly does devotion mean? That's a word we don't really use all that often. And I would say, ask yourself, what are you devoted to? Are you devoted to your spouse? Are you devoted to your favorite sports team? Are you devoted to your favorite author? So take some time to wrestle with that. What does devotion look like in your life? And if you're having difficulty identifying that, just ask yourself these two simple questions that are on the screen. Where do I spend my time and what engages me emotionally? Now, I specifically chose where do I spend my time as opposed to where do I spend my free time. I thought about changing it to that, but then I realized you can absolutely be devoted to your work and to sleep, which are probably the two things you do most. You know, eight hours a day at work, seven, six, eight, I don't know how much you sleep. I try for a good solid seven. Well, those are the two things that I do more than anything else. So those things you can be devoted to in a good way or in an unhealthy way. And then what engages you emotionally? I thought about this one. I thought, I thought about changing it to what makes you happy. But then I realized I'm a Red Sox fan. They do not always make me happy. And if you're a Vikings fan, you can relate to that, right? You may be really devoted. You watch all the games. You read the commentaries. You read. But do they always make you happy? Absolutely not. But does the word devotion apply there? It might, for good and bad reasons. So ask yourself those questions. Where are you spending your time? Apart from work and sleep, what do you do the most? So as I applied this to myself over the last three weeks, I came up with work. I'm certainly devoted to work because I do want to make money and support my family and I don't want to lose my job. I am devoted to sleep because you won't like me on four hours of sleep. Seven is about my sweet spot. I'm pretty devoted if you look at my schedule If you look at my last few weeks, you would say that I'm pretty devoted to watching Star Wars and Marvel shows with my kids. I do a lot of that. And having kids gives me an excuse to do that. I would do that if I didn't have kids, but having kids, it's like quality time with them to a certain degree. Um, So you would say that that's something I'm devoted to. Uh, I like collecting knowledge. So I read a lot, but I read a lot in a lot of different areas. Like, I don't read books. That's too long. (laughs) 
Uh, I listen to books on audio, uh, but I like collecting knowledge. So that's probably a good thing, but again, could be taken too far. And then Naomi would certainly agree that solving problems and organizing my world with spreadsheets is something I'm very devoted to. I can make a spreadsheet out of anything, and I love it. But notice there's not prayer on there, and there's not evangelism on there. I don't spend enough time doing those things for them to register in, like, my top ten. Just, they're not there. Just my life does not reflect that those things are where my devotion is. So that hurt a little bit to see that. And it begs the question, what would it look like to have that same kind of commitment to prayer? So the next question I think we need to ask is, how do you go from tepid about prayer to devoted? And I have a couple things. This is not an exhaustive list, but just the things that came to mind as I was preparing this. Number one, start somewhere. Don't wait for the right conditions or the inspiration. You've already been given the command to pray, so just do it. Just start doing it. Just start somewhere. Find a little bit of time, even if it's five minutes in the car. If it's in the car, don't close your eyes. Please keep your eyes open. But find a little bit of time and find a little bit of space and just start. And then secondly, know that there's no special language required. I think a lot of people don't pray because they think they don't know how to. It's quite simple. Talk to God. That's it. Just talk to God. You don't need to know what justification means. You don't need to talk about propitiation. You don't need to drop all these, like, crazy SAT words that are, you know, sometimes in the Bible and sometimes not in the Bible. You don't need to sound great. For those of you who are parents, do you expect your kids to speak at, like, a college level when they talk to you? No. They're going to come to you and they're going to speak like kids speak. Well, that's... And you love it, right? You want to spend time with them no matter what they sound like, no matter if they're making sense or not. Well, God's the same way. He loves us. He wants to spend that time with us, and he doesn't care if you have the special language that makes you sound super spiritual. He just wants to hear from you. So don't wait to learn the language. This is especially true in corporate settings. A lot of people hate praying corporately because they're just so concerned about all the people who are listening and judging them. We're not interested in that. Just pray. Just pray anyway. Nobody's going to be sitting there thinking, man, you're really terrible at this. Just pray. Just do it. Talk to God. And if it's helpful, you can use a model like Acts. This is the first model for prayer that I learned as a young believer. It comes from a Bill Hybels book called Too Busy Not to Pray, which is a really good book. And this model is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So prayer broken down into four sections. And Note that supplication is at the end. Most people skip all the rest of it and go to supplication, which is a fancy word for asking for stuff. That's what supplication is. Most people think of prayer as only asking for stuff. And if you're only doing that, that's okay, but it would be better if you started with something like this. Adoration, worship. Remind yourself who God is. Why am I praying to him? Because he's the Lord of the universe. Is he able to hear my prayers? Absolutely, he is. He does. Is he able to respond to them? Yes, he is. He is the God of the universe. That's who you're praying to. Remind yourself of who he is. Remind yourself of all the good things about him. That's why you're here. That's why you're doing this. You want to spend time with him. Confession. Remind yourself of who you are. Who he is and who you are. Confess your sins before him. That can be a barrier between you and prayer is some unconfessed sin. So confess your sins. Make 
you know, position yourself in the right spot with him, to remind yourself of who you are, your need for him, your inability to do this on your own, your inability to fix the issues in your life without his help. Thanksgiving. Also then thank him for the ways he's already done that and is constantly doing that. Thank him for that grace that he's given to you. Thank you for the grace to forgive you for what you've just mentioned in your confession time. Thank him for the way he's answered past prayers. Thank him for all of the good gifts that he's given you in your life. And then move into that spot of what are your concerns? What are the cares that are on your heart? What are the things that you need to bring to him for yourself and for your family and for the people around you? Um, so this is a helpful model that uh, if you don't know where to start, like I said, start somewhere, you can start here. Start with adoration. And then we can follow the next part of his advice in this verse. Devote yourself to prayer being watchful and thankful. Well, what exactly does that mean? What does being watchful mean when it comes to prayer? I would suggest a couple of things that you're watching for. First of all, where is the need? What exactly are the needs that are around you? And not just with the supplication, but that's a good place to start. What are the needs in our community? What are the personal needs? What are the needs in your family? You have to be aware of what's going on around you to know exactly what you should be praying for. So be watchful for those things that are the prayer needs. We have a nice list in the bulletin. If you want to know what to pray for, pull out your bulletin. There's a whole list right there of things to pray for. And you probably have your own list of things that are not on there. Put them down on the prayer sheets that we hand in for the offering all the time. Be watchful and aware of what's going on around you. Be watchful of the things you can be thankful for. Be aware of the things you need to confess. Be watchful for the ways in which we can praise him. So all aspects of that Acts model, if you have that watchful mentality, you'll be able to spend a lot of time going through all of that. There's plenty of fodder for prayer. So where's the need? Secondly, what are the obstacles? What's getting in the way of my ability to pray right now? And there's a couple things that might be obstacles. One is environment. Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Is it too noisy? Sometimes it's difficult to pray because there's things happening around us physically that are distracting us from focusing on God. If you're sitting there shivering, it may be difficult for you to really be in that prayer mindset. Or your prayer, might, as mine often goes to in January, Lord, please help me to find a way to live somewhere other than here so I won't be shivering anymore. And then I'm just totally focused on that. Um, so noisy, noise can be an issue. If you're trying to have a prayer time in the morning and the kids are crying in the room next door, that might not be the most you know, best time to choose to have your prayer time. You might need to find another time in the day when the kids are napping and make that your prayer time because you can focus. So there's going to be environmental obstacles. There can be spiritual obstacles. Where are you in your relationship with him? Are you feeling distant from him for some reason? Uh, is that going to get in the way of that prayer because there is some distance? It's been a long time since you've prayed maybe and you're feeling guilty about that. And so that's making it difficult for you to really release yourself and be connected to him. Is there some unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with? There can be spiritual obstacles that really help, you know, that make it hard for us to connect in prayer. Interpersonal. There can be an issue with you and another person that can get in the way of this as well. Are you distracted by some kind of grudge? Is there some kind of relationship, uh, some strain in a relationship that's really occupying all your thoughts? That might be a prayer need, but that can also be an obstacle. 
you can be so focused on that that you're no longer really connecting with the Spirit. It can also happen, and this has probably happened to you, speaking of the corporate prayer, where you're with somebody who goes on and on and on and on, and you're starting to like feel super sleepy because it's nice and warm in there, so there's a temperature obstacle too, and you're like, does this person realize there are other people in the room that would also want to pray out loud? I've been in that situation before and trying, trying so hard not to judge them about it, but just being like, please wrap it up so we can all be involved in this corporate prayer and it not just be us listening to you. Or there's people that will like pray really high and lofty prayers using as big as words as possible, and you're like, are you praying to God or are you showing off for us right now? I've been in that situation too, and it's so hard then to not lose the point, right? You're just sitting there thinking about that other person and you're no longer thinking about God. So all of these are obstacles and all of these are things to be watchful about. And then what else do we want to be watchful about? Results. How has God moved in the past? How has he answered the prayer? God answers all prayers with a yes, a no, or a not yet. All of them. So look for the answers. And if it's like, shoot, this hasn't happened, this thing that I wanted, well, is that a not yet or was that a no? Think about that. And if it was a no, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Fifth, be be thankful. When he answers, be thankful. That's the end of this verse. So how do you cultivate that mindset of being thankful when the answer is no or not yet? When that thing that you wanted or the thing you want for somebody else hasn't happened? Can you yield yourself to the reality that God's timing is perfect and that his will is perfect and that his love for us is perfect? Do you trust him? So be thankful if it was a yes, if it was a no, if it was a not yet. Be thankful. Be thankful for all of these answers because we have a God that listens and hears and responds. Moving on to verse 3, Paul says, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. So he's encouraging us to pray broadly, the Colossians and us, to pray broadly, but then he gets specific too. If you're going to pray, and I hope you do, please pray for me, and pray for these two things. First, an open door for our message. So this is an evangelism focus. Pray for our evangelism that we will have open doors. Well, the implication, of course, is that doors exist. There are barriers between the gospel message and those that need to hear it. So what are some of those barriers? What were the barriers that Paul experienced in his day, and what are some of the barriers that we experience in our day? I thought of a couple things, and again, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but one of the barriers for Paul's day was that this was a really strange message that he was sharing. There was nothing like this at all. A crucified Savior, a God who died, what was that all about? This was just something that was so foreign to his Jewish audience and to his Roman audience. Like, what is this all about? You guys follow this crazy resurrection story, and there's a trinity. There's three gods, but there's there's one God. We don't really understand that either. And Paul acknowledges this later in the verse when he says, the mystery of Christ. He wants people to know, this is different. It's not something you've heard before. It's a bit of a mystery, so go into it realizing you're not, maybe not going to get it the first time. And he uses that phrase in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. It appears multiple times in this book because he realizes you've got to let people know that they're about to hear something they have never heard before. We have the opposite problem today, don't we? 
Everybody thinks they know what Christianity is about. Jesus is the most famous person in history. Oh yeah, Jesus, I know about that. Do you? Do you really? People think they know what Christianity is all about, and so they're not interested in hearing the message because they already have preformed ideas about it. And so there's a barrier of like, ah, this is not new. This is old stuff. Been there, done that. But of course, most of them really haven't been there and done that. They've done some version of it, or they've, they've done something that's really not it at all. So we have this strange message versus the familiarity of the message then. One of the things that's the same between then and now is discrediting the messengers. That's a, fam a favorite strategy of those that don't want to hear about Jesus, is they discredit the messengers. If in Paul's era, it was, oh, you guys, you're a bunch of drunkards. You're a bunch of rabble-rousers. You're just here to stir up trouble. All these accusations that were placed on the disciples and Paul. You're just a wacko Jewish sect. You know, all of the slander that they faced. And Paul has addressed this already a couple weeks ago. Colossians 2, 16 through 23, the little verse section there in my Bible says, don't let anyone disqualify you. So Paul's addressing that. Don't let people just try to make you think that you have nothing to say. That happens in our day, too. You know, there's things that people will toss around that just simply are not true. One of my favorites, air quotes, tropes is about the divorce rate among Christians being the same as the rest of the world. Have you heard that? It's absolutely not true. It's true if you define Christian as someone who says they're a Christian. They're totally nominal, but they don't have any church attendance habits. But if you look at people who actually attend church and actually, like, apply the gospel to their lives, our divorce rate's a fraction of what the non-Christians and atheists and even most other religions are. But they love to throw that around to just make us seem like we're no better than anybody else. Another one that you've probably heard of a lot recently is like the whole argument that if you're pro-life, you really shouldn't say anything unless you've personally adopted an orphan or you're personally reaching out to young you know, women who are in crisis pregnancies. Now, we don't all do that, of course, but the church leads the way in those areas. The church is the one that is leading the way in adoptions and leading the way with things like crisis pregnancy centers. So they just throw that accusation out there, but it's simply not true. We don't all have to be involved and all have done every one of those things. And most of the ones lobbying that accusation at us, they don't do it either. And then thirdly, back then, the predominant mindset was that I'm not good enough, that I can't be saved because I can't keep the law if you were a Jew I can't possibly keep all the law, or, you know, I can't please all the Roman gods. There's so many of them. There's all the Roman gods, and there's all these gods we've brought in from people we've conquered, and we have really no idea which one is the most important, so we try to please all of them, but who knows if we're actually getting it right, so there's really no way we can be good enough for God. Nowadays, we kind of have the opposite. I'm not bad enough. I'm 50.1% good, and that's enough. Because it's just about having your good just be slightly more than your bad. So both of those messages are totally antithetical to the gospel. Um, and those are the barriers. We have people receiving this message through these filters. And so we have to pray for open doors. We have to pray that these barriers will be removed. And so our application for us, pray for those open doors, the removal of those barriers. And pray for that for yourself. Pray for that for the people in this church. Pray for that for our our global missions partners and our local missions partners. So pray for open doors. And then I think there's an implication in here. You see at the end here, Paul says, for which I am in chains. Why does he drop that in there? 
because I think Paul wants them to pray for open doors and maybe an open jail cell. So he puts this in a lot of his stuff, the letters that he writes from prison, he mentions this, and he's reminding his friends about his predicament, and it has several purposes. One, it's a mark of effective ministry at the time. If you weren't being persecuted, you probably weren't trying very hard in that day and age to share the gospel. So being in prison meant he was doing something right and kind of validated his ministry. So that's one reason to remind them of what he's doing and what it's cost him. Number two, it still stank to be in prison. You didn't want to be there. He didn't want to be in there. He wanted to go travel to other places that he hadn't been yet, visit some of the churches he had seen. So he would like to get out of prison. So if they want to pray for the prison doors to come open, that would be great for him. And then thirdly, prisons don't provide necessities like they do now back then. It was not a great place to be. It was not humane conditions. You were totally reliant on people that knew you and knew you were in there to bring you stuff, like food, and bring you things like more writing paper so that I can write more letters uh, that'll one day be in the Bible. So like, he needed those people to be aware of what was happening and to help him out, to come visit him. So all of those things are part of this. Pray for me. I'm in prison, and you can help me out here. So for us today, we should be praying for people who are persecuted for their faith. We should expect that some opposition may be in store for us too. If we're boldly sharing our faith in an increasing intolerant world, some of that might happen. Maybe not prison, but we may, we may pay a price for it. The next verse, verse 4, he says, Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, this might seem a bit like, well, why did you include this in here? Is this really necessary? Um, and to that I would say, have you read Paul? It's difficult. Even like some of the stuff we did like a couple weeks ago, like all the circumcision, circumcision stuff, that, you know, you read that and you're like, what is exactly he talking about here? Or read the book of Romans. Easy, right? Totally understandable. First time through it, got it. It's difficult stuff. Paul is brilliant. Make no mistake about it. He's a first-rate theologian. But it's not exactly a summer beach read. Or in it, written at a third-grade level. This is seminarian-level stuff. So I think he knew this. I think he knew this about himself. I think he knew that brevity and simplicity were not his strong suits. And I think he realized that he needed divine help to present it and in a manner that was going to make it palatable and understandable to the masses. And so he's asking for that help. Help me to keep it at a level they can understand and not go too far into the weeds on the theology when I'm sharing with people. With you, yes, there's got to be a written record because you need to know. But when I'm sharing it with non-believers, you know, you got to be careful. And we do too. We probably need the same help. Like I said before with the prayer thing, there's, there's a Christian language. I've heard it referred to as Christianese where after a time of being a believer, you get to learn all the vocabulary, and you can drop those SAT words here and there and sound really, really spiritual. That's not a good strategy for trying to reach your non-believing neighbors. Please don't lead your gospel presentation talking about justification. There'll be a time for that later, but you probably don't want to start there. If you don't know where to start, tell your story. That's the easiest way to do this. You probably know it well, and few things are more compelling or more memorable than a well-told story. So share your own testimony of how you came to faith and what God has done for you. That's the easiest way to do this. Just share that story. So some of the simplest gospel explanations of all time are some of the most effective. 
So there's one in mind, very simple, a very condensed, very concise, simplified version of the gospel that was written in 1772, and I bet you know it by heart. So we're going to do a little audience participation part here. So I'm going to start it, and we'll see if you can fill it in. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that I once was, but now am, was, but now. That's the gospel in simplified form, right? I once was lost and now found. Then there's room to fill in the details. How exactly, what does that lostness look like? And how exactly was I found? But that's a simple version of the gospel story. And I can't help but wonder, how many people have come to faith simply by pondering the message of that hymn? But if you want tools, if, you, if you're a tool person and you want to have some tools in your toolbox as you do this, we have some. If you've been involved in children's ministry in any way, shape, or form, you have probably shared the gospel story using colored beads. Can I see hands? Anybody know the colored beads one? Yeah, there's black and white and red and green, and they all, you know, they all correspond to different aspects of the gospel story. And then the kids come home with a bracelet with these colored beads that will remind them of the gospel story. That's a tool that we can use to tell the story. There's also something called the bridge illustration. That's this right here. This is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All you need is a pen and a napkin. And to remember this image, you write wages and sin and death on the left side. Gift of God is eternal life on the right side. Sin is the chasm in the middle that we can't possibly cross with, with our good works or our trying really hard. The only thing that can cross that is is the cross, is Jesus and his sacrificial death for us. And so that's our path to getting to all of those things. Pretty simple illustration, not hard to remember, uh, using Romans 6.23. If you have a little more time, you can do the Romans Road, which is the next one up here. And so that's just a series of verses in Romans. Romans 3.23, we're all sinners by nature and choice. Romans 6.23, which we just did. Romans 5, 8, God loves us as we are unconditionally. Romans 10, 9, and 10, that our response is to trust and believe, to confess and believe. And then Romans 10, 13, our salvation is assured. So you can just memorize those few verses there, or at least know kind of which ones they are. You can walk, work, you know, guide someone through a gospel presentation using those verses in Romans. Whatever the method is, whether it's telling your story, it's using one of these things, just equip yourself with tools for sharing your faith so that you're ready when the opportunity comes. And that brings us to verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Now, in the context of the previous verse and the next one that's coming, we know that Paul is talking about evangelism again. He wants us to view every interaction with non-believers through the prism of evangelism. He wants us to ask the question, how is my behavior toward this person going to help them draw near to Christ? We can think of it in the opposite terms, too. Is my behavior toward this person pushing them away from Christ because of something that I'm doing that's inconsistent with my faith? But let's stay positive. How's my behavior helping this person? Am I influencing them in a way that is drawing them closer, pushing them closer towards a relationship with Christ? I have to confess here again, I don't tend to view my interactions this way. I don't. Most of my interactions with my neighbors are small talk, or we're talking about what's happening with our lawns. Um, a lot of it is transactional. 
this person's bringing me my food, this person's scanning the items I'm about to purchase, this person is just someone who I'm sending an email to at work, I really don't know them, but I have some business transaction with them, and I don't tend to think about these people in terms of where are they spiritually, and do I have an opportunity to engage with them? So I'm careful with how I choose my words, so that's something I do do. I am like trying to be pleasant and kind. I'm trying not to make my emails just super businessy. I'm trying to start with, hey, good morning, or thank you for your help. You know, it's adding some of those pleasantries in there just so I can be a positive influence on their life. But that is not the same thing as making the most of every opportunity. Making the most of every opportunity is active, not passive. And it requires for most of us a mindset shift, an openness to the Spirit to do things according to His agenda and not our own. Now, I knew someone once who I thought did an exceptional job with this, and I feel like I've told this story before, but bear with me. So he was a guy that whenever you saw him and you said, how are you doing? That's like the rhetorical greeting kind of question that so many of us get. He would say, better than I deserve which would always get a kind of like, what? <laughs> that was not the answer I was expecting. What do you mean by that? You know, he saw how are you doing as an opening, as an opportunity to set up a gospel message. Because when they would say, what do you mean by that? Well, I deserve death because of my sin, but I've been given life because of Christ. Boom, gospel presentation right there. And some people would have been like, okay, uh, let's move on from that really quickly because you just made me uncomfortable. But other people were like, what? Tell, what, tell me more about that. There was an opening there. But, you know, his approach here took time and perspective. It took time because the resulting exchange took longer than simply saying fine and moving on to whatever was the business that you had to attend to. And it took perspective because he knew that the excess time was worth it. He loved the person he was speaking with more than he loved his own agenda. And I have to confess again, I struggle with this immensely. I'm a planned person. I'm always planning stuff five steps ahead. And I don't like deviating for that plan. I really don't. So I just have my agenda. My default setting is somewhat selfish. I'm going to choose my, over, my own agenda over someone else's potential spiritual need. I'm going to make that choice. I, I haven't trained myself to not make that choice that way. I'm going to value efficiency over compassion my default setting again, I prefer the safety of how are you doing, I'm fine, okay, let's move on, rather than you know, saying better than I deserve and not having any idea where it's going to go next. I like the order of a well-planned agenda and following to it closely, and I need to develop in myself the just yearning for and a desire for and an openness to the beautiful chaos of trusting the Spirit in every one of my human interactions. And if that's you too, if that's not you, great, love it. Tell us more. How do you do it? What, how have you seen God move in that? I need to hear some of these stories that this guy told of how the Spirit has really worked in the midst of that to just get me out of my own, uh, out of my own head and my own plan. So, but if you're like me, if you struggle with that too, let's pray together that the Lord will help reca recalibrate how we see and engage with those around us. And then let's go back to what I said at the beginning. Receive grace. I got to give it to myself with this. And if you're like me, then you will too. And we see this word comes up again in our next verse. 
Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So I'm trying to live this one out right now. As I worked on this sermon and realized how convicting it could be, I kept coming back to how important it was that it be full of grace. Grace is the most distinctive and most wonderful concept we have to offer to the world. Uh, There's an excellent book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace that really changed my perspective on this. Grace is unique to Christianity. This idea that we're accepted as we are and that we don't need to earn God's love, Christianity is the only religion that offers that. And it's absolutely revolutionary in a society where pretty much everything is merit-based. So once again here, this is the message we need to be sharing with other people. They need to know about this grace that is so unique, and we need to be preaching it to ourselves over and over again, especially as we hear about things that we maybe should be doing that we aren't doing well. We've got to come back to the idea again and again that prayer and evangelism aren't things we do to become loved. They're things we do because we are loved. You've got to let that sink in. Prayer and evangelism aren't things we do to become loved there are things we do because we are loved. When we know we are loved, it becomes so much easier to love other people and to want the best for them by putting grace in all of our conversations and seasoning it with salt. Now, what exactly does that mean? Why is there a sort of culinary reference in here? Salt has two purposes. It's a preservative and it brings out flavor. So salt, you put it on something to make it last a little longer, to prevent it from spoiling. And you put it on things to make them taste better, to bring out some of those flavors. Our conversation can have the same effect. Our words can bring life. Our words can prevent decay when they're gospel words. And our words can bring out the best in people. They can bring out the flavor in everybody's individual personality. Does your conversation do that? Does it help preserve life and bring out the best in people? The bottom line here is that words matter. They have power. That whole sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will ever hurt me is one of the biggest lies ever told. Absolutely untrue. Words matter. Your words can bring life, and they can bring out the best in people, and they can remind people of the truth that they're created by a loving God with intrinsic value, accepted, and loved. And this verse continues to tell us what the ultimate purpose of that is, so that we know how to answer everyone. You'll hear time and again, listening is such an important skill, and it absolutely is. But there's a time to speak. There's a time to speak, and this is it. The time to speak so that you can know how to answer everyone. We have, are called to speak as believers, and we're called to specifically give answers. And what kinds of questions do we give answers to? The most important questions. Not, is this the year that Kirk Cousins finally becomes more than a compiler of stats? That's not a super important question. But what about, what am I here for? Is there any hope? Do I have worth? These are the questions that the souls of men and women are yearning to have answered. They surround themselves with a great many trivial things to distract themselves from their existential dread. As a song in a book about 20 years ago said, there's a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts that only can be filled by him. And people are trying all the time to fill it with other things, success, fame, money, possessions, and it doesn't work. 
They're square pegs trying to fit into round holes, and they will not plug it. They will not. Only one thing does. Blaise Pascal said this much more eloquently 350 years ago, so this is by no means a new idea. He said this, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? This would be Eden. Of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. It is such a privilege, brothers and sisters, to help other human beings identify that abyss and then teach them, show them how to fill it, because we know if we're in the Lord, we know that the only thing that fills that abyss is God. So what about us? How are we doing with that? Do you see people that way? Do you see the people you interact with as people that may, may be struggling to fill that abyss and trying to find things that will not fill it? Honestly, again, laying it all out there, I'm too wrapped up in my own life most of the time to see people that way. I'm too self-focused or I'm focused just solely on my own family or my group of friends, most of whom are believers. Those are not bad things to be focused on my family or on my group of friends, but I'm just asking God to increase my vision for those that are around me, to increase my vision for my neighbors, to see them as people that have that abyss and that I can help them to find the thing that will fill it, to make the most of every opportunity so that I know how to answer everyone when they have those questions. And I think the prerequisite to all of this, the thing that may be missing, the thing that is missing oftentimes is love. We have to love the people that we encounter, enough to risk to speak them about what they don't even know they need. We have to be willing to take that. And Paul knows this, and Paul has already addressed this a chapter ago. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. We've got to flash back to this. He's already set this up with the Colossians. This isn't a new idea. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, there you are again, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgives you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There's so much in here that captures things we've been talking about over the last 30 minutes or so. So, Paul knew this. He, 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 he spoke about this. He wrote about this with them, that love is the key. It sounds like such a cliche, but there's a reason why we say it over and over again. When we know we are loved, we can love others. And when we define our existence by the grace we've received, we can help others discover their own reason and purpose as well. So do you know that you are loved? If your zeal for prayer isn't what it should be, if your relationships with others aren't centered around the gospel and an earnest desire to see people reconciled to the Lord, maybe it's because you aren't secure in God's love for you. You'll need to wrestle with that. I can't answer that for you. So if you're feeling some weight of conviction from these verses, as I've been doing for the last three weeks, remember that you were loved. You know, Stop the trivial things you spend so much time pursuing and instead sit with this truth and let it wash over you. And if you do better working this out with a friend, then find someone who loves the Lord and ask him or her for help with that. 
one way or another, brand this message on your heart and then revisit these verses with a new perspective. So as we close here, I just want to say it's so clear that Paul's heart was for prayer and evangelism. And he earnestly wanted the Colossians to join him in his dedication to these things. And these verses are for us too. There are some verses that were for a particular time and place. I firmly believe that these letters are for us too. Not just for the Colossians, but they're applicable to today's church. And I think the Holy Spirit desires for us to be devoted to these things in the same way that Paul was and in the same way that he called the Colossians to. So how are you doing? What have you seen as you've looked in Paul's mirror today? Are you satisfied with your prayer life and how often you communicate a clear gospel message to those with God-shaped holes in their hearts? I hope so. But if you're like me and the answer is no, not really, don't ignore it. Do something about it. Ask God to meet you in this, because I'm confident that he will. Regardless of how you evaluate yourself, though, I hope that each and every one of you comes back to grace. We started there, and we have to end there, too. So that what you see in the mirror is a person accepted and deeply loved by God just because of who you are, not because of what you have done. Let's pray and close this service with a song. Jesus, I pray that we would rest deeply in your grace and that we would also take these words to heart, that we would do both of those things, that we would rest in the knowledge that we are accepted as we are, that we would rest in the knowledge that you love us without us having to do anything to earn it. But I also pray that we would be convicted in a spirit-led way to engage with you more in prayer, to talk to you because you desire that for us and from us. You desire to spend time with us, and I pray that we wouldn't forget it or neglect it, but that we would yearn for that presence with you. And Lord, that our, our security and our love uh, and security in your love for us would motivate us to share that gospel message with the world, with those around us, that we would make the most of every opportunity as Paul did, and he's, he's calling us to as well. But Lord, most of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for your forgiveness, for your grace and your love. It's, it's the air we breathe. And so I thank you for that, Father, and I pray that you would just help us take this to heart and worship you as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.